the necessity of regeneration from the theology of Timothy Dwight, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The work of regeneration, the necessity, the reality, the nature of regeneration. Number one, I shall consider the necessity of the work of regeneration. In the preceding discourse, I took the fact that some men are regenerated for granted, and on this ground attempted to prove that the agency of the Spirit of God was necessary for the accomplishment of our regeneration. The question concerning the necessity of regeneration itself, and the question concerning the necessity of that agency in producing it, are entirely distinct. Yet it will be readily perceived that the arguments adduced under the latter question in the preceding discourse may with unabated force be in several instances applied to the former, that which is now under consideration. Particularly is this true concerning several passages of Scripture then adduced, for example, John 3, 5, and 6, Romans 8, 6 and 7, Galatians 5, 19 to 23, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, connected with the context are all together with several others of this nature. On these, to avoid wearying my audience with repetitions, I shall not at present insist. At the same time, the certainty that there is nothing in our moral character which will lead us to regenerate ourselves, as exhibited in that discourse, is one and an important one among the reasons which evince in connection with other arguments the necessity of regeneration, and is therefore with propriety recalled to your remembrance on the present occasion. But the great proof of the necessity of regeneration is found in the depravity of our nature. The universality and the degree of this corruption have been shown, if I am not deceived, in a manner too evident to be rationally called in question. In the discourses which I formally delivered on these subjects, I produced a long train of passages of Scripture in which the natural character of man is, in the most unequivocal terms, declared to be corrupt, sinful, and abominable in the sight of God. This truth I elucidated also by arguments drawn from reason and experience, which to my own view were unanswerable. Among these I specified the opposition made by mankind to the gospel, the testimonies which mankind of themselves given concerning this subject in their laws, their religion, their history, their conversation, and their conduct, both in amusements and the serious business of life. From these and several other things I derived it as a consequence flowing in my own view irresistibly from the premises that in our flesh or native character there dwelleth no good thing. This doctrine Paul teaches in the most explicit manner. In the three first chapters of the epistle to the Romans, in commenting on his own words, says, We approve both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. 
I shall consider this point as being actually proved, and on this basis shall found the following arguments designed to show the necessity of regeneration. First, it is unreasonable to suppose that God can admit sinners to the blessings of heaven. God is perfectly holy, and therefore regards sin only with hatred and abhorrence. Every sinner opposes his whole character, law, designs, and government, loves what he hates, hates what he loves, and labors to dishonor his name and to frustrate his purposes. The designs of God involve the supreme and eternal good of the universe. In the accomplishment of this divine purpose, His glory is entirely manifested, because the best of all characters is thus displayed in the most perfect degree. But these designs and the character discovered in accomplishing them, the sinner steadily hates and opposes. Were it in His power, He would frustrate the accomplishment and prevent the glory of God and the supreme good of the creation. This character of the sinner God discerns with clear and unerring certainty. Both his guilt and its desert are naked to the omniscient eye. It is impossible, therefore, that he should not regard it with abhorrence. To suppose him then to approve and love such a character is to suppose him to approve of that which he sees to be deserving of his absolute reprobation, and to love that which he knows merits nothing but his hatred. Should he in fact do this, he would invert his whole system of dispensations towards the universe and exhibit to his intelligent creatures a character totally new and directly opposite to that which he has displayed hitherto in his law and government, especially in the work of redemption. Of course, he would not only cease to be unchangeable, but would become a being of a totally opposite character to that perfect one, which is hitherto challenged to himself. He would renounce his deity and cease to sustain the excellence involved in the incommunicable name Jehovah. Further, should God, without approving of a sinful character, confer upon the unregenerated sinner the blessings which are the proper rewards of virtuous creatures, he would equally desert his character and government and overthrow the wisdom, equity, and end of his designs. Every external favor shown to guilty beings after their probation is ended is a testimony on the part of God that he approves of their conduct during the probationary state and a reward for that conduct. It is a definitive testimony, a testimony given when all of their conduct is before him, a solemn judicial testimony, a testimony of action, the surest interpreter of the thoughts. In the present case, it would be the highest and most solemn of all testimonies, because he would bestow on them the greatest of all rewards, the blessings of heaven. If, then, he did not feel this approbation, he would, in the case opposed, declare the greatest possible falsehood to the universe, that impenitent sinners merited the highest rewards which it was in his power to bestow. He would declare that such sinners deserve the same proofs of his favor as his obedient children, and were, therefore, of the same character, that rebels were faithful subjects, that enemies were friends, and that, although he had heretofore denounced them as objects of his wrath, they were still the objects of his infinite complacency. 
This would be no other than a final declaration on his part that right and wrong, holiness and sin were the same things, that his law and the government founded on it were introduced to no purpose unless to excite wonder and fear in his intelligent creatures that the redemption of Christ was accomplished to no end, and that all the divine conduct, solemn, awful, and sublime as it has appeared, was wholly destitute of any object, and really of no importance in the view of the infinite mind. Secondly, this change of heart is absolutely necessary for the sinner himself in order to make him capable of the happiness of heaven. Heaven is the seat of supreme and unmingled happiness, of enjoyment, solid, sincere, and eternal. The foundation on which so far as creatures are concerned this happiness ultimately rests is their holy and virtuous character. All their affections, all their pursuits, all their enjoyments are virtuous without a mixture. Hence heaven is called the high and holy place. And from the dispensations of God towards these unspotted beings is termed the habitation of his holiness. With such companions a sinner could not accord. Such affections he could not exercise. In such pursuits he could not unite. In such enjoyments he could not share. This is easily and familiarly demonstrated. Sinners do not love virtuous persons here, exercise no virtuous affections, engage in no virtuous pursuits, and relish no virtuous enjoyments. Sinners in the present world love not God, trust not in the Redeemer, delight not in Christians, and regard neither the law of God nor the gospel of His Son with complacency of heart. Sinners in this world find no pleasure in the Sabbath, nor in the sanctuary, and never cordially unite either in the prayers or the praises than in their offered up to their Maker. How then could sinners find happiness in heaven? That glorious world is one vast sanctuary, and the endless succession of ages which roll over its happy inhabitants are an everlasting Sabbath. Their great and commanding employment is unceasing and eternal worship. They rest not day nor night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who wast, who art, and who art to come. As the worship of God is uniformly burdensome to sinners here, the same worship must be at least equally burdensome to them there. Nay, it must be far more burdensome. The more holy, the more spiritual anything is in this world, the more loathsome, the more painful is it to the mind of a sinner. But all the employments of heaven are supereminently holy and spiritual. These, then, must be far more disgusting than anything which religion or its worship could present to its view in the present world. In heaven, therefore, he would be far less happy than he is here. Everything with which he was conversant would more oppose his taste, contravene his wishes, and disappoint his expectations. Nothing would give him pleasure. Everything would give him pain. If, then, a sinner is to be admitted into heaven, it is absolutely necessary that he should have a new heart, a new disposition. Otherwise, it is plain that, amid all the blessings of that delightful world, he would find nothing but disgust, mortification, and sorrow.
Thirdly, such a change is necessary for the sinner also in order to his becoming a useful inhabitant of heaven. All the inhabitants of that happy world are formed to do good as well as to enjoy it. Their enjoyment itself is supremely the result of a disposition to do good and of conduct in which this disposition is completely carried into efficacious practice. There is realized in the most absolute manner the whole nature of that perfect rule of righteousness delivered by our Savior, that it is more blessed to give than to receive, to do good than to gain it from others. Virtuous beings are assembled here for the very purpose of exhibiting in their conduct the divine nature and transcendent defects of this evangelical rule of righteousness, and from their united efforts flows and streams continually enlarging, universal, unceasing, immortal, and good. The good here enjoyed is a common or public good, in which one great and general interest is proposed and pursued, and to which all private personal interests are cheerfully subordinated. No selfish affection operates here. No selfish purpose exists. Every mind is expanded with affections all embracing the common interest. Every design is elevated to a happiness rendered noble and supreme because it is universal. To this object every pulse beats, every heart thrills, every tongue vibrates. On it as if magnetically influenced every eye is fixed, to it every hand is turned. But every sinner would feel that all these things were against him. His affections are only selfish, and his designs concenter solely in private, separate ends, and in interests opposed to the general welfare. His only scheme of happiness also is to gain enjoyment from others, and never to find it in doing good to others. This is the subject of which, as a source of enjoyment, he forms not a single conception. All his plans for happiness are matters of mere bargain and sale. In every instance of which he intends to get the advantage of those with whom he deals, good to him is good only when it is separate and selfish, and he knows not what it is to see his own happiness enlarged by the general participation. In the great commanding and sole pursuit of the heavenly world, a sinner would be unable to unite at all. Every wish of his heart must oppose the wishes and designs of all around him, and the great object for which heaven itself was formed by the Creator, which renders it delightful in his eye, and for which he has gathered into it the assembly of the firstborn. Of course he would be alone separated from his companions by a character totally opposite to theirs, hostile to them in all his wishes and pursuits, marked by them as an alien, despised as useless and worthless, pitied as miserable and loathed as sinful. Sin is the real and only cause of the wretchedness experienced in the present world, and the immediate as well as the original cause of the woes experienced in the regions of perdition. Were sinners admitted into heaven the same lust, fraud, and cruelty, the same injustice, oppression, and violence, in a word, the same wickedness and woe which prevail in this world, would revive in that. Of course, a whole system of happiness, begun there and intended to be carried on throughout eternity, would be either prevented or destroyed. 
That God should permit these evils to exist is incredible, and in my view, impossible. Fourthly, it is absolutely necessary that this change should be accomplished in this present world. The present state is to man the only state of probation. All beyond the grave is a state of reward. The reward ought plainly to be such as to suit the character of every probationer, a true testimony of God to his real character, a reward such as he has merited and such as a righteous God may be expected to bestow. Of course, a testimony actually given must be a testimony to the character with which he leaves this world of probation and with which he goes to the judgment. Besides, man enters into that world with the very same character with which he leaves this. Death makes no moral change in man, but is a mere passage from one state of being to another, a mere dismission from this world to that, of the probationer from his probation. A simple termination of the animal functions, a mere separation of the soul from the body, plainly cannot alter the moral state of the soul or change at all its views, affections, or character. Of this truth, the scriptures furnish abundant evidence. Do, says Solomon, whatever thy hand findeth to do with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in Sheol, the world of departed spirits, whither thou goest. The night cometh, saith our Savior, that is, the night of death, in which no man can work. Both these are direct declarations, that both the work and the state of probation are terminated by the grave and will never exist in the future world. Accordingly, no change in the character of man, either in the article of death or at any succeeding period of existence, is indicated in the scriptures. Of course, every man will appear at the judgment with the very character which he has when he leaves the present world, and in this character only will he be rewarded. Accordingly, the scriptures teach us that we shall be judged according to the deeds done in the body and rewarded according to our works accomplished on this side of the grave. It is plain, then, that if man enter the future world without being regenerated in this, they enter with all their sins upon their heads and must be rewarded for their sins only. But a reward for sin can never be happiness. If, then, sinners are to be admitted into heaven at all, they must undergo this great change of moral character here. Of sinners must become holy, must cease from their rebellion and disobedience must bow their wills to the will of God, and must yield themselves to Him as voluntary instruments of His glory. Section 2 The reality of this change in man may be satisfactorily evinced in the following manner. First, it is declared in the Scriptures. Besides the evidence derived to the reality of regeneration from the absolute necessity of it to mankind, the scriptures declare the existence of it in a great variety of forms. Of his mercy he saved us, says Paul, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who is made unto us of God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. To be sanctified is to be regenerated, and here it is declared that Christ has become of God's sanctification to all his children. 
You have put off the old man with his deeds, says Paul to the Colossians, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Put off, says the same apostle to the Ephesians, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In these passages of Scripture, we are plainly taught the following things. First, that the natural character is considered by the apostle as differing from the regenerated according to the full import of these two names, the old man and the new man. Secondly, that the regenerated character is a new character. Thirdly, that the assumption of this new character is equivalent to being renewed or created anew, both of these expressions being used to denote it. Fourthly, that the former character or old man is a corrupt character conformed to deceitful lusts, or under the influence of such lusts. Fifthly, that the new man or new character is created after or in the image of God. Sixthly, that this image consists in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. Here the Ephesian Christians are declared to be the workmanship of God as to their Christian character, and to be created in or through Christ Jesus unto good works. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ, or rather by Christ. Here the former state of the Ephesians is declared to have been a state of death and sins, and their new state is declared to be a state of life, and this they are said to have derived from God. But Paul himself explains the import of this passage, if it needs explanation, by informing us that to be carnally minded is death, and that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Saints also are said to be sanctified, to be washed, to be purified by the Spirit of God. It is impossible that the reality or the greatness or the importance of this change should be expressed in stronger or more definite terms. Those who are the subjects of it are said to be made clean, pure, and holy, to have a new heart, a right spirit, to be renewed, to be born again, to be born of God, to be born of the Spirit of God, to be made alive from the dead, to be created anew, and to be new creatures. Can any language more strongly declare that a real change is made in the moral character of man? that he becomes the subject of a character altogether new and never belonging to him before? As a child when born has a new state of existence, so he who was born of God has also a state of existence equally new to him. As a thing when created begins then first to have existence, so he who is created anew begins then to have spiritual existence. Accordingly, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13.2, Without love I am nothing, that is, without holiness, the love of the gospel, I have no spiritual being, no existence in the spiritual creation or kingdom of God. 
Secondly, the reality of regeneration is clearly proved by the scriptural accounts of the first Christians. Of the conversion of these Christians and their consequent character, we have ample accounts in the Acts and the Epistles. Those who were Jews, we know beyond a doubt, were bitter and obstinate enemies and furious persecutors of Christ and his apostles, hated the religion which they taught, were bigoted votaries of a religion consisting in mere external services, children of wrath and children of disobedience. What the Gentiles were is amply unfolded in the first chapter to the epistle of the Romans, where they are declared by Paul to be lost in absolute abandonment and profligacy of character. Yet in consequence of the preaching of the apostles, these same Jews and Gentiles assumed an entirely new character and continued to exhibit it with increasing beauty throughout the remainder of their lives. Instead of their former fleshly works enumerated by Paul, Galatians 5, 19-21, they showed in all their conversation, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, the divine and delightful fruits of the Spirit of grace. Instead of persecuting Christians, they exhibited towards them all acts of kindness and suffered persecution with them for the sake of the same glorious Redeemer. Instead of their former empty and merrily ceremonious religion, they embraced a genuine piety and pure morality of the gospel. All their intemperance, impurity, deceit, injustice, pride, and bigotry they renounced, and in their place substituted permanently the sober, chaste, sincere, equitable, candid, and benevolent spirit of the Christian system. Through life they exhibited this spirit in every amiable form, and at death sealed this unexceptionable testimony with their blood. Now it is certain that an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth evil things, and a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. It is certain that a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, nor a corrupt tree good fruit. In other words, a heart will always characterize a conduct. Whence, then, let me ask, was the difference in the conduct of these Jews and Gentiles before and after their conversion to Christianity? The only answer which can be given consistently with these declarations of Christ is that their hearts before corrupt in proving themselves to be so by a life distinguished by all kinds of wickedness were now made holy and were proved to be so by a life adorned with every good work. To add to this decisive evidence, if it can be added to, it may be observed that all the remaining Jews and Gentiles who were not the subjects of this conversion continued still to exhibit the same wickedness which their countrymen had also before exhibited, and were just as odious in the sight of God and of man. 
Thirdly, the same truth is abundantly evident in the present experience of mankind. It cannot be asserted to the satisfaction of a rational inquirer that the external, visible change in the conduct of a man who before his regeneration has with a good degree of uniformity exhibited a conscientious, becoming, and amiable life is, after his regeneration, so great as to convince the mind that he has experienced this radical alteration of character. Converse, however, even with such men in a course of intimate Christian familiarity, and you will always find a radical difference in their views, sentiments, and conduct, a difference realized by themselves and obvious to you. On this subject, a minister of the gospel ought to be allowed to possess peculiar knowledge, because he has peculiar advantages for acquiring it. Ministers converse in this manner more extensively than any other class of mankind and have, therefore, more various and more abundant opportunities of gaining an acquaintance with facts of this nature. These opportunities I have myself enjoyed, and have here declared nothing but what I have often witnessed. Yet these are not the cases which ought to be here insisted on. Instances less liable to doubt and misconstruction exist in numbers amply sufficient to place a point in debate beyond every reasonable objection. Wherever known infidels or other open and gross sinners have suddenly and finally renounced not only their false opinions but their evil practices, and have continued through life to profess uniformly the doctrines and to exhibit regularly and increasingly the duties of Christianity, the case becomes decisive and must, unless we cease to reason concerning human nature and human conduct upon known and established principles, satisfy every candidate. Inquirer. The conduct in both cases proceeds from the heart. The state of the heart, therefore, or its moral character, was in one case as opposite to what it was in the other as the conduct. The evil conduct proceeded from an evil heart, the good conduct from a good heart. And this change of the heart from evil to good, or from sin to holiness, is a very change which in the scriptures is styled regeneration. Among the instances of this nature, Colonel Gardner may be mentioned as one, and the Reverend John Newton as another. Both extraordinary, convincing, and so far as I can see, unexceptionable. I have known a considerable number of instances, scarcely less extraordinary, some of them by unquestionable information, others by personal acquaintance. Two of these were examples of habitual drunkenness, perhaps the most hopeless of all evil habits, and the Reformation was so entire, and the piety so evident, uniform, and long-continued, as to leave no doubts in the minds of sober men acquainted with the facts." A third instance, well meriting to be mentioned, was a young man of superior talents formerly educated by me in this seminary. He devoted himself to the profession of medicine and entered upon the practice with advantage. This youth was not only a determined infidel, but an open scoffer at the Bible, Christianity, Christians, and most other subjects of a religious nature. All these he exposed with a pungency of wit and keenness of satire which few men are capable of employing, and which very few are willing to employ in the same open, gross manner.
After some years spent in this violent course of wickedness, he became seriously alarmed, I know not on what occasion, concerning his sinful character and future destiny. If I remember right, he almost or entirely despaired for a time of the mercy of God, and considered his perdition as sealed. At length, however, he acquired hopes of salvation, and manifested in his conduct the spirit of Christianity, so evidently and uniformly as to excite a settled conviction in the minds of those around him that he was sincerely a Christian. With entirely new views and purposes, he then quitted the medical profession and entered upon the study of theology. After some time, he was regularly inducted into the ministry of the gospel and sustained to his death, which happened about twelve or fifteen years afterwards, the character of an able, faithful, and unblameable minister of Christ. Instances of this nature generally I can multiply extensively, but the time forbids me to proceed any further in this part of my subject. Fourthly, the state of Christianity in the world at large may be fairly adduced as a convincing proof of the reality of this change. The history of real Christianity is not to be sought for in the accounts given us of the life, policy, ambition, and violence of such rulers, statesmen, and warriors as have assumed the Christian name. The real nature and influence of the religion in Christ are not to be sought for in camps and cabinets, in courts and palaces. These are the seats of pride and luxury, ambition and cunning, wrath and revenge. Christianity here is only put on as an upper garment to adorn the character, to comport with the fashion, or to cover unchristian designs. I do not intend that this is always the case. There are undoubtedly good men to be found even here. But I mean that it is much more generally the case than a good man would wish or be willing it should be. When infidels take their accounts of Christianity from the proceedings of the great, from their luxury, statecraft, conquests, and persecutions, they do not and probably intend not to do any justice to the subject. In these accounts they impose on their readers and perhaps on themselves. But they deceive no man of common candor and tolerable information. The real effects of Christianity on mankind are to be sought and found in steel life, quiet society, peaceful neighborhoods, and well-ordered families. Here a thousand kind offices are done, and a thousand excellencies manifested, of which the great and splendid rarely form a conception, and which nevertheless present the human character to the view of the mind with an aspect incomparably more lovely than any other. But even on the great scale of examination, Christianity has meliorated the affairs of this unhappy world in such a degree, as if thoroughly examined strongly to evince the truth of this doctrine. If we compare the state of Christian nations, especially the most enlightened and virtuous of them, with that of the most improved heathen nations, the only fair mode of instituting a comparison... We shall see ample proof of such amelioration of the human character as can be justly attributed to nothing but this important change of the human heart. Christianity has removed from among the nations who profess it polygamy, the selling of children as slaves by their parents, 
the general and brutal degradation of women, the belief of the rectitude of slavery, the supposed right of masters to kill their slaves, the exposure of parents in their old age to be devoured by wild beasts, the same exposure of children by their parents, the sacrificing of human victims, the wanton destruction of human life for amusement in public games, the impure, brutal, and sanguinary worship practiced in the regions of idolatry, together with many of the horrors of war and captivity, and many other enormous evils of a similar nature. At the, at the same time, it has introduced milder and more equitable government, established equitable laws by which nations have in a considerable degree regulated their intercourse, given a new sanction to treaties, provided legal support for the poor and suffering, secured the rights of strangers, erected hospitals for the sick and almshouses for the indigent, formed with great expense a rich variety of institutions for the preservation and education of orphans, the instruction of poor children, the suppression of vice, the amendment of the vicious, and the consolation of the afflicted. It has made better rulers and better subjects, better husbands and better wives, better parents and better children, better neighbors and better friends. It has established a rational worship of the one living and true God, built churches in which all men do or may worship him and learn their duty, and with immense expense has sent and is sending these blessings to the end of the earth. Whence this difference? Not from the difference of light. The Greeks and Romans were sufficiently enlightened at least to have begun this progress, but they did not take a single step towards real reformation. All that can be said is, their wickedness was a little more polished than that of the barbarian neighbors. No, it is sprung from that honest and good heart, which is not in man by nature, but is given him by the Spirit of God. Such hearts found here and there, like dispersed stars, even through the interstices of a clouded sky, diffuse a feeble radiance over Christian countries, and prevent the otherwise absolute darkness. Howard, intensely illumined with the benevolence of the gospel, shed a luster over the whole Christian world. Inferior lights are everywhere scattered, and their combined influences everywhere felt. Were the same character as that of all men, the change in human affairs would be such as to demand no arguments to prove a change of heart. As the state of things is, it is plain that the spirit of the martyrs was not in their persecutors, the spirit of Howard was not in Voltaire, the spirit of Alfred was not in Frederick II. He who cannot see this is unable because he will not, and may be well assured that under the influence of his present temper he has lost the power of moral discrimination. Regeneration is Necessity and Reality, Timothy Dwight, President of Yale College, 1818. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.